Our worthy acquaintance, Mr. Malachy Mulligan, now appeared in the doorway, as the students were finishing their epilogue, accompanied with a friend whom he had just rencountered, a young gentleman, his name Alec Bannum, who had late come to town, it being his intention to buy a colour or a cornetcy in the fencibles, and list for the wars. Mr. Mulligan was civil enough to express some relish of it, all the more as it jumped with a project of his own for the cure of the very evil that had been touched on. Whereat, he handed round to the company a set of pasteboard cards, which he had had printed that day at Mr. Quinnell's, bearing a legend printed in fair italics. Mr. Malachy Mulligan, Fertiliser and Incubator, Lambay Island. His project, as he went on to expound, was to withdraw from the round of idle pleasures, such as formed the chief business of Sir Fopling Popinjay and Sir Milksop Quidnunk in town, and to devote himself to the noblest task for which our bodily organism has been framed. Well, let us hear of it, good my friend, said Mr. Dixon. I make no doubt it smacks of wenching. Come, be seated both. Tis as cheap sitting as standing. Mr. Mulligan accepted of the invitation, and, expatiating on his design, told his hearers that he had been led into this thought by a consideration of the causes of sterility, both the inhibitory and the prohibitory, whether the inhibition in its turn were due to conjugal vexations or to a parsimony of the balance, as well as whether the prohibition proceeded from defects congenital or from proclivities acquired. It grieved him plaguely, he said, to see the nuptial couch defrauded of its dearest pledges, and to reflect upon so many agreeable females with rich jointures, a prey for the vilest bonzes who hide their flambeau under a bushel in an uncongenial cloister, or lose their womanly bloom in the embraces of some unaccountable muskin, when they might multiply the inlets of happiness, sacrificing the inestimable jewel of their sex, when a hundred pretty fellows were at hand to caress... This, he assured them, made his heart weep. To curb this inconvenience, which he concluded, due to a suppression of latent heat, having advised with certain counsellors of worth and inspected into this matter, he had resolved to purchase in fee simple, forever, the freehold of Lambay Island from its holder, Lord Talbot de Malahide, a Tory gentleman of note, much in favour with our ascendancy party. He proposed to set up there a national fertilising farm, to be named Omphalos, with an obelisk hewn and erected after the fashion of Egypt, and to offer his dutiful yeoman services for the fecundation of any female of what grade of life soever who should there direct to him with the desire of fulfilling the functions of her natural. Money was no object, he said, nor would he take a penny for his pains. The poorest kitchen wench, no less than the opulent lady of fashion, if so be their constructions, and their tempers were warm persuaders for their petitions, would find in him their man. For his nutriment he showed how he would feed himself exclusively upon a diet of savoury tubercles and fish and conies there, the flesh of these latter prolific rodents being highly recommended for his purpose, both broiled and stewed, with a blade of mace and a pod or two of capsicum chilies. After this homily, which he delivered with much warmth of asseveration, Mr. Mulligan, in a trice, put off from his hat a kerchief with which he had shielded it, 
they both, it seems, had been overtaken by the rain, and for all their mending their pace, had taken water, as might be observed by Mr. Mulligan's small clothes of a hodden grey, which was now somewhat piebald. His project, meanwhile, was very favourably entertained by his auditors, and won hearty eulogies from all. Though Mr. Dixon of Mary's accepted to it, asking, with a finicking air, did he purpose also to carry coals to Newcastle? Mr. Mulligan, however, made court to the scholarly by an apt quotation from the classics, which, as it dwelt upon his memory, seemed to him a sound and tasteful support of his contention. Talis ac tanta depravatio huius seculi, o quiritis, ut matris familiarum nostri lascivis cuius libit semiviri libici titillationis testibus ponderosis, adque excelsis erectionibus centurionum romanorum magnopre anteponunt. While for those of ruder wit, he drove home his point by analogies of the animal kingdom, more suitable to their stomach the buck and doe of the forest glade, the farmyard drake and duck. Valuing himself not a little upon his elegance, being indeed a proper man of his person, this talkative now applied himself to his dress with animadversions of some heat upon the sudden whimsy of the atmospherics, while the company lavished their encomiums upon the project he had advanced. The young gentleman, his friend, overjoyed as he was at a passage that had befallen him, could not forbear to tell it his nearest neighbour. Mr. Mulligan, now perceiving the table, asked for whom were those loaves and fishes, and seeing the stranger he made him a civil bow and said, Pray, sir, was you in need of any professional assistance we could give? Who, upon his offer, thanked him very heartily, though preserving his proper distance, and replied that he was come there about a lady, now an inmate of Horn's house, that was in an interesting condition, poor lady, from woman's woe and here he fetched a deep sigh to know if her happiness had yet taken place. Mr. Dixon, to turn the table, took on to ask Mr. Mulligan himself whether his incipient ventripotence, upon which he rallied him, betokened an overblastic gestation in the prostatic utricle or male womb, or was due, as with the noted physician, Mr. Austin Meldon, to a wolf in the stomach. For answer, Mr. Mulligan, in a gale of laughter at his smalls, smote himself bravely below the diaphragm, exclaiming with an admirable droll mimic of Mother Grogan, the most excellent creature of her sex, though it is pity she's a trollop, There's a belly that never bore a bastard. This was so happy a conceit that it renewed the storms of mirth and threw the whole room into the most violent agitations of delight. The spry rattle had run on in the same vein of mimicry, but for some larum in the antechamber. Here the listener, <coughs> who was none other than the Scotch student, a little fume of a fellow, blonde as toe, congratulated in the liveliest fashion with the young gentleman, and, interrupting the narrative at a salient point, having desired his vis-a-vis -vis with a polite beck to have the obligingness to pass him a flagon of cordial waters, at the same time, by a questioning pose of the head, a whole century of polite breeding had not achieved so nice a gesture to which was united an equivalent but contrary balance of the head, asked the narrator as plainly as was ever done in words if he might treat him with a cup of it. Mais bien sûr, noble stranger, said he cheerily, a mille compliments, that you may, and very opportunely. There wanted nothing but this cup to crown my felicity. 
But, gracious heaven, was I left with but a crust in my wallet and a cup full of water from the well, my God, I would accept of them and find it in my heart to kneel down upon the ground and give thanks to the powers above for the happiness vouchsafed me by the giver of good things. <coughs> with these words, he approached the goblet to his lips, took a complacent draught of the cordial, slicked his hair, and, opening his bosom, out popped a locket that hung from a silk riband, that very picture which he had cherished ever since her hand had wrote therein. Gazing upon those features with a world of tenderness, Ah, monsieur, he said, had you but beheld her as I did with these eyes at that affecting instant with her dainty tucker and her new coquette cap, a gift for her feast day, as she told me, in such an artless disorder of so melting a tenderness, upon my conscience even you, monsieur, had been impelled by generous nature to deliver yourself wholly into the hands of such an enemy, or to quit the field for ever. I declare I was never so touched in all my life. God, I thank thee as the author of my days. Thrice happy will he be whom so amiable a creature will bless with her favours. A sigh of affection gave eloquence to these words, and having replaced the locket in his bosom, he wiped his eye and sighed again. Beneficent disseminator of blessings to all thy creatures, how great and universal must be that sweetest of thy tyrannies, which can hold in thrall the free and the bond, the simple swain and the polished coxcomb, the lover in the heyday of reckless passion, and the husband of maturer years. But indeed, sir, I wander from the point. How mingled and imperfect are all our sublunary joys! Maledicity! Would to God that foresight had remembered me to take my cloak along! I could weep to think of it. Then, though it had poured seven showers, we were neither of us a penny the worse. But beshrew me, he cried, clapping hand to his forehead. Tomorrow will be a new day, and thousand thunders I know of a marchand de capote, Monsieur Points, from whom I can have for a leave as snug a cloak of the French fashion as ever kept a lady from wetting. Cries Le Fecondateur, tripping in. My friend Monsieur Moore, that most accomplished traveller, I have just cracked a half bottle avec lui in a circle of the best wits of the town, is my authority that in Cape Horn, Ventrebiche, they have a rain that will wet through any, even the stoutest cloak. A drenching of that violence, he tells me, sans blague, has sent more than one luckless fellow in good earnest post haste to another world. Pooh! A leave! Monsieur Lynch. The clumsy things are dear at a sou. One umbrella, were it no bigger than a fairy mushroom, is worth ten such stopgaps. No woman of any wit would wear one. My dear Kitty told me today that she would dance in a deluge before ever she would starve in such an ark of salvation, for, as she reminded me, blushing piquantly and whispering in my ear, though there was none to snap her words but giddy butterflies, Dame Nature, by the divine blessing, has implanted it in our heart, and it has become a household word, that il y a deux choses for which the innocence of our original garb, in other circumstances a breach of the proprieties, is the fittest, nay, the only garment. The first, said she, and here my pretty philosopher, as I handed her to her tilbury, to fix my attention, gently tipped with her tongue the outer chamber of my ear. The first is a bath. But at this point a bell tinkling in the hall 
cut short a discourse which promised so bravely for the enrichment of our store of knowledge. Amid the general vacant hilarity of the assembly, a bell rang, and while all were conjecturing what might be the cause, Miss Callan entered, and having spoken a few words in a low tone to young Mr. Dixon, retired with a profound bow to the company. The presence, even for a moment, among a party of debauchees of a woman endued with every quality of modesty, and not less severe than beautiful, refrained the humorous sallies even of the most licentious. But her departure was the signal for an outbreak of ribaldry. "'Strike me silly,' said Costello, a low fellow who was fuddled. "'A monstrous fine bit of cow-flesh!' I'll be sworn she has rendezvoused you. What, your dog? Have you away with them, gadsbud? Immensely so, said Mr. Lynch. The bedside manner it is that they use in the matter hospice. Demi, does not Dr. O'Gargle chuck the nuns there under the chin? As I looked to be saved, I headed for my kitty, who has been ward-made there any time these seven months. Locks the mercy, doctor cried the young blood in the primrose vest, feigning a womanish simper and immodest squirmings of his body. How you do tease a body. Drat the man. Bless me, I'm all of a wibbly-wobbly. Why, you're as bad as dear little father. Can't you kiss him? That you are. Made this pot of four half choke me, cried Costello, if she ain't in the family way. I knows a lady what's got a white swelling quick as I claps eyes on her. The young surgeon, however, rose and begged the company to excuse his retreat, as the nurse had just then informed him that it was needed in the ward. Merciful Providence had been pleased to put a period to the sufferings of the lady who was enceinte, which she had borne with a laudable fortitude, and she had given birth to a bouncing boy. "'I want patience,' said he, "'with those who, without wit to enliven nor learning to instruct, revile an ennobling profession, which, saving the reverence due to the deity, is the greatest power for happiness upon the earth. I am positive when I say that if need were, I could produce a cloud of witnesses to the excellence of her noble exercitations, which, so far from being a byword, should be a glorious incentive in the human breast. I cannot away with them. What? Malign such a one, the amiable Miss Callan, who is the luster of her own sex, and the astonishment of ours, and, at an instant, the most momentous that can befall a puny child of clay, perish the thought. I shudder to think of the future of a race where the seeds of such malice have been sown, and where no right reverence is rendered to mother and maid in House of Horn. Having delivered himself of this rebuke, he saluted those present on the by and repaired to the door. A murmur of approval arose from all, and some were for ejecting the low soaker without more ado, a design which would have been effected, nor would he have received more than his bare deserts, had he not abridged his transgression by affirming with a horrid imprecation, for he swore a round hand, that he was as good a son of the true fold as ever drew breath. "'Step my vitals,' said he. "'Them was always the sentiments of honest Frank Costello, "'which I was bred up most particular to honour thy father "'and thy mother that had the best hand to a roly-poly "'or a hasty pudding as you ever see. 
what I always looks back on with a loving heart. To revert to Mr. Bloom, who, after his first entry, had been conscious of some impudent mocks, which he, however, had borne with, being the fruits of that age upon which it is commonly charged that it knows not pity. The young sparks, it is true, were as full of extravagances as overgrown children. The words of their tumultuary discussions were difficultly understood and not often nice. Their testiness and outrageous moe were such that his intellects resiled from, nor were they scrupulously sensible of the proprieties, though their fund of strong animal spirits spoke in their behalf. But the word of Mr. Costello was an unwelcome language for him, for he nauseated the wretch that seemed to him a crop-eared creature of a misshapen gibosity born out of wedlock, and thrust like a crook-back tooth and feet-first into the world, which the dint of the surgeon's pliers in his skull lent indeed a colour to, so as to put him in thought of that missing link of creation's chain, desiderated by the late ingenious Mr. Darwin. It was now for more than the middle span of our allotted years that he had passed through the thousand vicissitudes of existence, and being of a wary ascendancy, and self a man of rare forecast, he had enjoined his heart to repress all motions of a rising collar, and, by intercepting them with the readiest precaution, foster within his breast that plenitude of sufferance which base minds jeer at, rash judges scorn, and all find tolerable and but tolerable. To those who create themselves wits at the cost of feminine delicacy, a habit of mind which he never did hold with, to them he would concede neither to bear the name nor to inherit the tradition of a proper breeding, while for such that, having lost all forbearance, can lose no more, there remained the sharp antidote of experience to cause their insolency to beat a precipitate and inglorious retreat. Not but what he could feel with mettlesome youth, which caring not for the mows of dotards or the gruntlings of the severe is ever, as the chaste fancy of the holy writer expresses it, for eating of the tree forbid it. Yet not so far forth, as to pretermit humanity upon any condition soever towards a gentlewoman when she was about her lawful occasions. And to conclude, while from the sister's words he had reckoned upon a speedy delivery, he was, however, it must be owned, not a little alleviated by the intelligence that the issue so auspicated after an ordeal of such duress now testified once more to the mercy as well as to the bounty of the Supreme Being. Accordingly, he broke his mind to his neighbour, saying that to, to express his notion of the thing, his opinion, who ought not perchance to express one, 
was that one must have a cold constitution and a frigid genius not to be rejoiced by this freshest news of the fruition of her confinement, since she had been in such pain through no fault of hers. The dressy young blade said it was her husband's that put her in that expectation, or at least it ought to be, unless she was another Ephesian matron. I must acquaint you, said Mr. Crothers, clapping on the table so as to evoke a resonant comment of emphasis. Old glory allalurum was round again today, an elderly man with dundreries, preferring through his nose a request to have word of Wilhelmina, my life, as he calls her. I bade him hold himself in readiness, for that the event would burst anon. Slife, I'll be round with you. I cannot but extol the virile potency of the old buckle that could still knock another child out of her. All fell to praising of it, each after his own fashion, though the same young blade held with his former view that another than her conjugal had been the man in the gap, a clerk in orders, a link boy, virtuous, or an itinerant vendor of articles needed in every household. Singular communed the guest with himself. The wonderfully unequal faculty of metempsychosis possessed by them, that the puerperal dormitory and the dissecting theatre should be the seminaries of such frivolity, that the mere acquisition of academic titles should suffice to transform in a pinch of time these votaries of levity into exemplary practitioners of an art which most men, anywise eminent, have esteemed the noblest. But, he further added, it is mayhap to relieve the pent-up feelings that in common oppress them, for I have more than once observed that birds of a feather laugh together. But with what fitness, let it be asked, of the noble lord, his patron, has this alien, whom the concession of a gracious prince has admitted to civil rights, constituted himself the lord paramount of our internal polity? Where is now that gratitude which loyalty should have counselled? During the recent war, whenever the enemy had a temporary advantage with his granados, did this traitor to his kind not seize that moment to discharge his peace against the empire of which he is a tenant at will, while he trembled for the security of his four percents? Has he forgotten this, as he forgets all benefits received? Or is it that from being a deluder of others he has become at last his own dupe, as he is, if report belie him not, his own and his only enjoyer? Far be it from candour to violate the bedchamber of a respectable lady, the daughter of a gallant major, or to cast the most distant reflections upon her virtue. But if he challenges attention there, as it was indeed highly his interest not to have done, then be it so. Unhappy woman, she has been too long and too persistently denied her legitimate prerogative to listen to his objurgations with any other feeling than the derision of the desperate. He says this, a censor of morals, a very pelican in his piety, who did not scruple, 
oblivious of the ties of nature, to attempt illicit intercourse with a female domestic drawn from the lowest strata of society. Nay, had the hussy's scouring brush not been her tutelary angel, it had gone with her as hard as with Hagar the Egyptian. In the question of the grazing lands, his peevish asperity is notorious, and in Mr. Cuff's hearing brought upon him from an indignant rancher a scathing retort, couched in terms as straightforward as they were bucolic. It ill becomes him to preach that gospel. Has he not, nearer home, a seed field that lies fallow for the want of a plowshare? A habit reprehensible at puberty is second nature and an opprobrium in middle life. If he must dispense his balm of Gilead in nostrums and apophems of dubious taste to restore to health a generation of unfledged profligates, let his practice consist better with the doctrines that now engross him. His marital breast is the repository of secrets which decorum is reluctant to adduce. The lewd suggestions of some faded beauty may console him for a consort neglected and debauched. But this new exponent of morals and healer of ills is at his best an exotic tree, which, when rooted in its native orient, throve and flourished and was abundant in balm. But, transplanted to a clime more temperate, its roots have lost their quondam vigour, while the stuff that comes away from it is stagnant, acid, and inoperative. The news was imparted with a circumspection recalling the ceremonial usages of the sublime port by the second female infirmarian to the junior medical officer in residence, who in his turn announced to the delegation that an heir had been born. When he had betaken himself to the women's apartment to assist at the prescribed ceremony of the afterbirth in the presence of the Secretary of State for Domestic Affairs and the members of the Privy Council, silent in unanimous exhaustion and approbation, the delegates chaffing under the length and solemnity of their vigil and hoping that the joyful occurrence would palliate a license which the simultaneous absence of Abigail and officer rendered the easier, broke out at once into a strife of tongues. In vain, the voice of Mr. Canvasser Bloom was heard endeavouring to urge, to mollify, to restrain. The moment was too propitious for the display of that discursiveness which seemed the only bond of union among tempers so divergent. Every phase of the situation was successively eviscerated. The prenatal repugnance of uterine brothers, the Caesarean section, posthumity with respect to the father and that rarer form with respect to the mother, the fratricidal case known as the child's murder and rendered memorable by the impassioned plea of Mr. Advocate Bush which secured the acquittal of the wrongfully accused, the rights of primogeniture and king's bounty touching twins and triplets, miscarriages and infanticides, simulated and dissimulated, a cardiac fetus in fetu, a prosopia due to a congestion, the agnatia of certain chinless Chinamen cited by Mr. Candidate Mulligan in consequence of defective reunion of the maxillary knobs along the medial line, so that, as he said, one ear could hear what the other spoke, the benefits of anesthesia or twilight sleep, the prolongation of labour pains in advanced gravidancy by reason of pressure on the vein, 
the premature relentment of the amniotic fluid as exemplified in the actual case, with consequent peril of sepsis to the matrix. Artificial insemination by means of syringes. Involution of the womb consequent upon the menopause. The problem of the perpetuation of the species in the case of females impregnated by delinquent rape. That distressing manner of delivery called by the Brandenburgers Stutzgeburt. The recorded instances of multigeminal, twi-kindled and monstrous births conceived during the cataminic period or of consanguineous parents. In a word, all the cases of human nativity which Aristotle has classified in his masterpiece with chromolithographic illustrations. The gravest problems of obstetrics and forensic medicine were examined with as much animation as the most popular beliefs on the state of pregnancy, such as the forbidding to a gravid woman to step over a country's style, lest by her movement the navel cord should strangle her creature, and the injunction upon her in the event of a yearning, ardently and ineffectually entertained, to place her hand against that part of her person which long usage has consecrated as the seat of castigation. The abnormalities of hair lip, breast mole, supernumerary digits, negro's inkle, strawberry mark and port wine stain were alleged by one as a prima facie and natural hypothetical explanation of swine-headed, the case of Madame Grizel Stevens was not forgotten, or dog-haired infants occasionally born. The hypothesis of a plasmic memory, advanced by the Caledonian envoy and worthy of the metaphysical traditions of the land he stood for, envisaged in such cases an arrest of embryonic development at some stage antecedent to the human. An outlandish delegate sustained against both these views with such heat as almost carried conviction the theory of copulation between women and the males of brutes, his authority being his own avouchment in support of fables such as that of the Minotaur, which the genius of the elegant Latin poet has handed down to us in the pages of his Metamorphoses. The impression made by his words was immediate but short-lived. It was effaced as easily as it had been evoked by an allocution from Mr. Candidate Mulligan in that vein of pleasantry which none better than he knew how to affect, postulating as the supremest object of desire a nice, clean old man. Contemporaneously, a heated argument having arisen between Mr. Delegate Madden and Mr. Candidate Lynch regarding the juridical and theological dilemma in the event of one Siamese twin predeceasing the other, the difficulty by mutual consent was referred to Mr. Canvasser Bloom, for instance submittal to Mr. Coadjutor Deacon Dedalus. Hitherto silent, whether the better to show by preternatural gravity that curious dignity of the garb with which he was invested, or in obedience to an inward voice, he delivered briefly, and as some thought perfunctorily, the ecclesiastical ordinance forbidding man to put asunder what God has joined. But Malachi's tale began to freeze them with horror. He conjured up the scene before them. The secret panel beside the chimney slid back, and in the recess appeared Haynes. Which of us did not feel his flesh creep? He had a portfolio full of Celtic literature in one hand, in the other a file marked poison. Surprise, horror, loathing were depicted on all faces while he eyed them with a ghastly grin. I anticipated some such reception, he began with an eldritch laugh, for which it seems history is to blame. 
Yes, it is true. I am the murderer of Samuel Childs. And how I am punished. The inferno is no terrors for me. This is the appearances on me. Tear and ages, what way would I be resting at all, he muttered thickly, and I tramp in Dublin this while back with my share of songs, and himself after me the like of a south or a bullawurus. My hell and Ireland's is in this life. It is what I try to obliterate my crime. Distractions, rook shooting, the earth's language, he recited some. Laudanum, he raised the file to his lips, camping out. In vain. His spectre stalks me. Dope is my only hope. Ah, destruction. The Black Panther. With a cry, he suddenly vanished, and the panel slid back. An instant later, his head appeared in the door opposite and said, Meet me at Westland Row Station at ten past eleven. He was gone. Tears gushed from the eyes of the dissipated host. The seer raised his hand to heaven, murmuring, the vendetta of Mananan, the sage repeated, Lex Talionis. The sentimentalist is he who would enjoy without incurring the immense debtorship for a thing done. Marakaius, overcome by emotion, ceased, and the mystery was unveiled. Haines was the third brother. His real name was Childs. The Black Panther was himself, the ghost of his own father. He drank drugs to obliterate. For this relief, much thanks. The lonely house by the graveyard is uninhabited. No soul will live there. The spider pitches a web in the solitude. The nocturnal rat peers from his hole. A curse is on it. It is haunted. Murderer's ground. What is the age of the soul of man? As she hath the virtue of the chameleon to change her hue at every new approach, to be gay with the merry and mournful with the downcast. So, too, is her age changeable as her mood. No longer is Leopold, as he sits there, ruminating, chewing the cud of reminiscence, that staid agent of publicity and holder of a modest substance in the funds. He is young, Leopold, as in a retrospective arrangement, a mirror within a mirror. Hey, presto! He beholdeth himself, that young figure of then is seen, precociously manly, walking on a nipping morning from the old house in Clambrassel Street to the high school, his book satchel on him bandolier-wise, and in it a goodly hunk of wheaten loaf, a mother's thought. Or it is the same figure a year or so gone over, in his first hard hat. Ah, that was a day! Already on the road, a full-fledged traveller for the family firm, equipped with an order book, a scented handkerchief, not for show only, his case of bright trinketware, alas, a thing now of the past, and a quiver full of compliant smiles for this or that half-one housewife, reckoning it out upon her fingertips, or for a budding virgin, shyly acknowledging, but the heart, tell me, his studied basement. The scent, the smile, but more than these, the dark eyes and oleaginous address, brought home at duskfall many a commission to the head of the firm. Seated with Jacob's pipe, after light labours in the paternal ingle, a meal of noodles, you may be sure, is a heating. Reading through round-horned spectacles some paper from the Europe of a month before. But hey, presto, the mirror is breathed on, 
and the young knight-errant recedes, shrivels to a tiny speck within the mist. Now he is himself paternal, and these about him might be his sons. Who can say? The wise father knows his own child. He thinks of a drizzling night in Hatch Street, hard by the bonded stores there, the first. Together, she is a poor waif, a child of shame, yours and mine, and of all, for a bare shilling and her luck penny. Together they hear the heavy tread of the watch as two rain-caped shadows pass the new Royal University. Bridie, Bridie Kelly, he will never forget the name, ever remember the night, first night, the bride night. They are entwined in nethermost darkness, the willer with the willed, and in an instant, fiat, light shall flood the world. Did heart leap to heart? Nay, fair reader, in a breath twas done. But hold, back, it must not be. In terror the poor girl flees away through the muck. She is the bride of darkness, a daughter of night. She dare not bear the sunny golden babe of day. No, Leopold, name and memory celest thee not. That youthful illusion of thy strength was taken from thee and in vain. No son of thy loins is by thee. There is none now to be for Leopold what Leopold was for Rudolph. The voices blend and fuse in clouded silence, silence that is the infinite of space, and swiftly, silently, the soul is wafted over regions of cycles of cycles of generations that have lived. A region where grey twilight ever descends, never falls on wide sage-green pasture fields, shedding her dusk, scattering a perennial dew of stars. She follows her mother with ungainly steps, a mare leading her filly foal. Twilight phantoms are they, yet moulded in prophetic grace of structure. Slim, shapely haunches, a supple, tenderness neck, the meek, apprehensive skull. They fade, sad phantoms, all is gone. Agendath is a wasteland, a home of screech owls and the sand-blind Yupupa. Netaim the golden is no more. And on the highway of the clouds they come, muttering thunder of rebellion, the ghosts of beasts. Ho! Oh, hark! Ho! Oh. Parallax stalks behind and goads them, the lacinating lightnings of whose brow are scorpions. Elk and yak, the bulls of Bashan and of Babylon, mammoth and mastodon, they come trooping to the sunken sea, lacus mortis. Ominous, revengeful, zodiacal host. They moan, passing upon the clouds, Horned and capricorned, The trumpeted with the tusked, The lion-maned, the giant-antlered, Snouter and crawler, rodent, ruminant, And pachyderm, All their moving, moaning multitude, Murderers of the sun. Onward to the Dead Sea they tramp to drink 
unslaked and with horrible gulpings the salt, somnolent, inexhaustible flood. And the equine portent grows again, magnified in the deserted heavens, nay, to heaven's own magnitude, till it looms vast over the house of Virgo. And lo, wonder of metempsychosis, it is she, the everlasting bride, harbinger of the day-star, the bride ever-virgin. It is she, Martha, thou lost one, Millicent the young, the dear, the radiant. How serene does she now arise, a queen among the Pleiades, in the penultimate anti-Lucan hour, shod in sandals of bright gold, coiffed with a veil of what you call it, gossamer. It floats, it flows about her star-born flesh, and loose it streams emerald, sapphire, mauve, and heliotrope, sustained on currents of cold interstellar wind, winding, coiling, simply swirling, writhing in the skies a mysterious writing, till after a myriad metamorphoses of symbol it blazes alpha, a ruby and triangle sign upon the forehead of Taurus. Francis was reminding Stephen of years before when they had been at school together in Conmee's time. He asked about Glaucon, Alcibiades, Pisistratus. Where were they now? Neither knew. You have spoken of the past and its phantoms, Stephen said. Why think of them? If I call them into life across the waters of Lethe, will not the poor ghosts troop to my call? Who supposes it? I, boost Evenuminus, bullet-befriending bard, am lord and giver of their life. He encircled his gadding hair with the coronal of vine leaves, smiling at Vincent. That answer and those leaves, Vincent said to him, will adorn you more fitly when something more and greatly more than a capful of light odes can call your genius father. All who wish you well hope this for you. All desire to see you bring forth the work you meditate. I heartily wish you may not fail them. Oh, no, Vincent Lenehan said, laying a hand on the shoulder near him. Have no fear. He could not leave his mother an orphan. The young man's face grew dark. All could see how hard it was for him to be reminded of his promise and of his recent loss. He would have withdrawn from the feast had not the noise of voices allayed the smart. Madden had lost five drachmas on Sceptre for a whim of the rider's name. Lenehan as much more. He told them of the race. The flag fell and... <gasps> off, Stamper! The mare ran out freshly with... Oh, Madden up! She was leading the field. All hearts were beating. Even Phyllis could not contain herself. She waved her scarf and cried, Huzzah! Scepter wins! But in the straight, on the run home, when all were in close order, the dark horse throwaway drew level, reached, outstripped her. All was lost now. Phyllis was silent. Her eyes were sad anemones. Juno, she cried, I am undone. But her lover consoled her and brought her a bright casket of gold in which lay some oval sugar plums which she partook. A tear fell, one only. A whacking fine whip, said Lenehan, is W. Lane. Four winners yesterday and three today. What rider is like him? 
Mount him on the camel or the boisterous buffalo, the victory in a hack canter is still his. But let us bear it as was the ancient wont. Mercy on the luckless. <sighs> Poor scepter, he said with a light sigh. She is not the filly that she was. Never by this hand shall we behold such another. By gad, sir, a queen of them. Do you remember her, Vincent? I wish you could have seen my queen today, Vincent said. How young she was, and radiant. Lalogy were scarce fair beside her, in her yellow shoes and frock of muslin. I do not know the right name of it. The chestnuts that shaded us were in bloom. The air drooped with their persuasive odour, and with pollen floating by us. In the sunny patches one might easily have cooked on a stone a batch of those buns with Corinth fruit in them that Periplopomenus sells in his booth near the bridge. But she had naught for her teeth but the arm with which I held her, and in that she nibbled mischievously when I pressed too close. A week ago she lay ill, four days on the couch, but today she was free, blithe, mocked at peril. She is more taking, then. Her posies, too. Mad romp that it is she had pulled her fill as we reclined together. And in your ear, my friend, you will not think who met us as we left the field. Con me himself. He was walking by the hedge, reading, I think, a brevier book with, I doubt not a witty letter in it from Glycera or Chloe to keep the page. The sweet creature turned all colours in her confusion, feigning to reprove a slight disorder in her dress. A slip of underwood clung there, for the very trees adore her. When Conme had passed, she glanced at her lovely echo in the little mirror she carries. But he had been kind. In going by he had blessed us. The gods, too, are ever kind, Lenehan said. If I had poor luck with Bass's mare, perhaps this draught of his may serve me more propensely. He was laying his hand upon a wine-jar. Malachy saw it and withheld his act, pointing to the stranger and to the scarlet label. Warily Malachy whispered, Preserve a druid silence. His soul is far away. It is as painful, perhaps, to be awakened from a vision as to be born. Any object intensely regarded may be a gate of access to the incorruptible eon of the gods. Do you not think it, Stephen? Theosophus told me so, Stephen answered whom in a previous existence Egyptian priests initiated into the mysteries of karmic law. The lords of the moon, Theosophus told me, an orange fiery shipload from planet Alpha of the lunar chain would not assume the etheric doubles, and these were therefore incarnated by the ruby-coloured egos from the second constellation. However, as a matter of fact, though, the preposterous surmise about him being in some description of a doldrums or other, or mesmerised, which was entirely due to a misconception of the shallowest character, was not the case at all. The individual whose visual organs, while the above was going on, were at this juncture commencing to exhibit symptoms of animation, was as astute, if not astuter, than any man living, and anybody that conjectured the contrary would have found themselves pretty speedily in the wrong shop. During the past four minutes or thereabouts, he had been staring hard at a certain amount of number one bass, bottled by Messrs. Bass and Co. at Burton-on-Trent, which happened to be situated amongst a lot of others, right opposite to where he was, and which was certainly calculated to attract anyone's remark, on account of its scarlet appearance. He was simply and solely, as it subsequently transpired, for reasons best known to himself, which put quite an altogether different complexion on the proceedings, 
after the moment before his observations about boyhood days and the turf, recollecting two or three private transactions of his own, which the other two were as mutually innocent of as the babe unborn. Eventually, however, both their eyes met, and as soon as it began to dawn on him that the other was endeavouring to help himself to the thing, he involuntarily determined to help him himself, and so he accordingly took hold of the medium-sized glass recipient which contained the fluid sought after, and made a capacious hole in it by pouring a lot of it out, with, also at the same time, however, a considerable degree of attentiveness, in order not to upset any of the beer that was in it about the place. The debate which ensued was, in its scope and progress, an epitome of the course of life. Neither place nor council was lacking in dignity. The debaters were the keenest in the land, the theme they were engaged on the loftiest and most vital. The high hall of Horn's house had never beheld an assembly so representative and so varied, nor had the old rafters of that establishment ever listened to a language so encyclopedic. A gallant scene, in truth, it made. Crothers was there at the foot of the table, in his striking highland garb, his face glowing from the briny airs of the Mull of Galloway. There, too, opposite to him was Lynch, whose countenance bore already the stigmata of early depravity and premature wisdom. Next, the Scotchman, was the place assigned to Costello, the eccentric, while at his side was seated in stolid repose the squat form of Madden. The chair of the resident, indeed, stood vacant before the hearth, but on either flank of it the figure of Bannon, in explorer's kit of tweed shorts and salted cowhide brogues, contrasted sharply with the primrose elegance and the town-bred manners of Malachy Rowland St. John Mulligan. Lastly, at the head of the board was the young poet, who found a refuge from his labours of pedagogy and metaphysical inquisition in the convivial atmosphere of Socratic discussion, while to right and left of him were accommodated the flippant prognosticator, fresh from the hippodrome, and that vigilant wanderer, soiled by the dust of travel and combat, and stained by the mire of an indelible dishonour, but from whose steadfast and constant heart no lure or peril or threat or degradation could ever efface the image of that voluptuous loveliness which the inspired pencil of Lafayette has limned for ages yet to come. It had better be stated here and now, at the outset, that the perverted transcendentalism to which Mr. S. Dedalus's Divsep contentions would appear to prove him pretty badly addicted, runs directly counter to accepted scientific methods. Science, it cannot be too often repeated, deals with tangible phenomena. The man of science, like the man in the street, has to face hard-headed facts that cannot be blinked, and explain them as best he can. There may be, it is true, some questions which science cannot answer. At present, such is the first problem submitted by Mr. L. Bloom, Pub Canv, regarding the future determination of sex. Must we accept the view of Empedocles of Trinacria that the right ovary, the post-menstrual period, assert others, is responsible for the birth of males, or are the two long-neglected spermatozoa or nemosperms the differentiating factors? Or is it, as most embryologists incline to opine, such as Culpepper, Spallanzani, Blumenbach, Blusk, Hertwig, Leopold and Valenti, a mixture of both. This would be tantamount to cooperation, one of nature's favourite devices, between the nisus formativus of the nemosperm on the one hand, and on the other a happily chosen position, succubitus felix, of the passive element. The other problem raised by the same inquirer is scarcely less vital, infant mortality. It is interesting because, as he pertinently remarks, we are all born in the same way, but we all die in different ways. 
Mr. M. Mulligan, Hyde at Huge Dock, blames the sanitary conditions in which our grey-lunged citizens contract adenoids, pulmonary complaints, etc., by inhaling the bacteria which lurk in dust. These factors, he alleges, and the revolting spectacles offered by our streets, hideous publicity posters, religious ministers of all denominations, mutilated soldiers and sailors, exposed scorbutic car drivers, the suspended carcasses of dead animals, paranoic bachelors, and unfructified duennas, these, he said, were accountable for any and every falling off in the calibre of the race. Calipedia, he prophesied, would soon be generally adopted, and all the graces of life, genuinely good music, agreeable literature, light philosophy, instructive pictures, plaster-cast reproductions of the classical statues, such as Venus and Apollo, artistic coloured photographs of prize babies, all these little attentions would enable ladies who were in a particular condition to pass the intervening months in a most enjoyable manner. Mr. J. Crothers, disc back, attribute some of these demises to abdominal trauma in the case of women workers subjected to heavy labours in the workshop and to marital discipline in the home, but by far the vast majority to neglect, private or official, culminating in the exposure of newborn infants, the practice of criminal abortion or in the atrocious crime of infanticide. Although the former, we are thinking of neglect, is undoubtedly only too true. The case he cites of nurses forgetting to count the sponges in the peritoneal cavity is too rare to be normative. In fact, when one comes to look into it, the wonder is that so many pregnancies and deliveries go off so well as they do, all things considered and in spite of our human shortcomings which often balk nature in her intentions. An ingenious suggestion is that thrown out by Mr. V. Lynch, Bakarith, that both natality and mortality, as well as all other phenomena of evolution, tidal movements, lunar phases, blood temperatures, diseases in general, everything, in fine, in nature's vast workshop from the extinction of some remote sun to the blossoming of one of the countless flowers which beautify our public parks, is subject to a law of numeration as yet unascertained. Still, the plain straightforward question, why a child of normally healthy parents and seemingly a healthy child and properly looked after, succumbs unaccountably in early childhood, though other children of the same marriage do not, must certainly, in the poet's words, give us pause. Nature, we may rest assured, has her own good and cogent reasons for whatever she does, and in all probability such deaths are due to some law of anticipation by which organisms in which morbus germs have taken up their residence, modern science has conclusively shown that only the plasmic substance can be said to be immortal, tend to disappear at an increasingly earlier stage of development, an arrangement which, though productive of pain to some of our feelings, notably the maternal, is nevertheless, some of us think, in the long run beneficial to the race in general in securing thereby the survival of the fittest. Mr. S. Dedalus's divsep remark, or should it be called an interruption, that an omnivorous being which can masticate, deglute, digest, and apparently pass through the ordinary channel with pluto-perfect imperturbability such multifarious elements as cancerous females, emaciated by parturition, corpulent professional gentlemen, not to speak of jaundiced politicians and chlorotic nuns, might possibly find gastric relief in an innocent collation of staggering bob, reveals as naught else could, and in a very unsavoury light, the tendency above alluded to. For the enlightenment of those who are not so intimately acquainted with the minutiae of the municipal abattoir, as this morbid-minded aesthete and embryo philosopher, who for all his overweening bumptiousness, in things scientific can scarcely distinguish an acid from an alkali, prides himself on being, 
It should perhaps be stated that staggering Bob, in the vile parlance of our lower-class licensed victuallers, signifies the cookable and eatable flesh of a calf newly dropped from its mother. In a recent public controversy with Mr. L. Bloom, pub can, which took place in the Commons Hall of the National Maternity Hospital, 2930 and 31 Hollis Street, of which, as is well known, Dr. A. Horn, lice in Midiff, F.K.Q.C.P.I., is the able and popular master, he is reported by eyewitnesses as having stated that once a woman has let the cat into the bag, an aesthetic allusion presumably to one of the most complicated and marvellous of all nature's processes, the act of sexual congress, she must let it out again or give it life, as he phrased it, to save her own. At the risk of her own, was the telling rejoinder of his interlocutor, nonetheless effective for the moderate and measured tone in which it was delivered. Meanwhile, the skill and patience of the physician had brought about a happy accouchement. It had been a weary, weary while, both for patient and doctor. All that surgical skill could do was done, and the brave woman had manfully helped. She had. She had fought the good fight, and now she was very, very happy. Those who have passed on, who have gone before, are happy too, as they gaze down and smile upon the touching scene. Reverently look at her as she reclines there with a mother light in her eyes, that longing hunger for baby fingers. A pretty sight it is to see, in the first bloom of her new motherhood, breathing a silent prayer of thanksgiving to one above, the universal husband. And as her loving eyes behold her babe, she wishes only one blessing more, to have her dear Dodie there with her to share her joy to lay in his arms that might of God's clay, the fruit of their lawful embraces. He is older now, you and I may whisper it, and a trifle stooped in the shoulders, yet in the whirligig of years a grave dignity has come to the conscientious second accountant of the Ulster Bank, College Green Branch. O Dodie, loved one of old, faithful life mate now, it may never be again, that far-off time of the roses. With the old shake of her pretty head, she recalls those days. God, how beautiful now across the mist of years. But their children are grouped in her imagination about the bedside, hers and his. Charlie, Mary Alice, Frederick Albert, if he had lived, Mamie, Budgie, Victoria Frances, Tom, Violet, Constance, Louisa, darling little Bobsy, called after our famous hero of the South African War, Lord Bobs of Waterford and Kandahar. And now this last pledge of their union, a pure foy if ever there was one, with a true pure foy nose. Young Hopeful will be christened Mortimer Edward, after the influential third cousin of Mr. Purefoy in the Treasury Remembrancer's office, Dublin Castle. And so time wags on, but Father Cronian has dealt lightly here. No, let no sigh break from that bosom, dear gentle Mina. And Dodie, knock the ashes from your pipe, the seasoned briar you still fancy, when the curfew rings for you, may it be the distant day, and doubt the light whereby you read in the sacred book. For the oil, too, has run low, and so 
with a tranquil heart to bed, to rest. He knows and will call in his own good time. You too have fought the good fight and played loyally your man's part. Sir, to you my hand. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. There are sins, or let us call them as the world calls them, evil memories which are hidden away by man in the darkest places of the heart. But they abide there and wait. He may suffer their memory to grow dim. Let them be as though they had not been, and all but persuade himself that they were not, or at least were otherwise. Yet a chance word will call them forth suddenly, and they will rise up to confront him in the most various circumstances, a vision or a dream, or while timbrel and harp soothe his senses, or amid the cool silver tranquility of the evening, or at the feast at midnight when he is now filled with wine. Not to insult over him will the vision come as over one that lies under her wrath, not for vengeance to cut off from the living, but shrouded in the piteous vesture of the past, silent, remote, reproachful. The stranger still regarded on the face before him a slow recession of that false calm there, imposed, as it seemed, by habit or some studied trick, upon words so embittered as to accuse in the speaker an unhealthiness, a flair for the cruder things of life. A scene disengages itself in the observer's memory, evoked, it would seem, by a word of so natural a homeliness as if those days were really present there, as some thought, with their immediate pleasures. A shaven space of lawn, one soft May evening, the well-remembered grove of lilacs at Round Town, purple and white, fragrant, slender spectators of the game, but with much real interest in the pellets as they run slowly forward over the sward, or collide and stop one by its fellow with a brief, alert shock. And yonder about that grey urn where the water moves at times in thoughtful irrigation, you saw another as fragrant sisterhood, Flowy, atty, tiny, and their darker friend, with I know not what of a resting in her pose then, our Lady of the Cherries, a comely brace of them pendant from an ear, bringing out the foreign warmth of the skin so daintily against the cool, ardent fruit. A lad of four or five in Lindsay Woolsey, blossom time, but there will be cheer in the kindly hearth when ere long the bowls are gathered and hutched is standing on the urn, secured by that circle of girlish, fond hands. He frowns a little, just as this young man does now, with a perhaps too conscious enjoyment of danger, but must needs glance at whiles towards where his mother watches from the piazzetta, giving upon the flower close with a faint shadow of remoteness or of reproach, alles vergängliche, in her glad look.